0: Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. Ephesians chapter 3. Have you ever seen the show on PBS called Antiques Roadshow? Of course you have, right? It's a very uh, fascinating show. People collect all this old junk in their basement and garages and a lot of them come thinking that it's of great value and then they bring it to this convention center and sit down at a table with, you know, this distinguished-looking bearded guy with a little wand in his hand who talks like Thurston Howell III or something. Um, And they try to determine what the value of this little piece of potentially garbage is. And at the end of the show, which is one of my favorite parts, they show the people who had the real garbage that I came with this piece and left with this piece worth whatever, you know, nothing uh, but the beauty of the show and the reason that most people watch it is because um, it highlights the items that are of great value. One lady from Tulsa, Oka- Oklahoma, came in 2010 to uh, a local regional broadcast that they had there in her area. And she had four items made from jade that were card- carved in the, in the Jing Dynasty in the 18th century China. And one of the pieces was inscribed with the words by imperial order. That is, ordered by the emperor. And the appraisal for all the pieces went down as one of the largest evaluations in Antiques Roadshow history. It was between $700,000 and $1.1 million for the four pieces together. And After she realized that, she was thinking it was in the low thousands or something that these things were worth, had no idea the real value of them. But can you imagine the difference between how she protected those things going into the roadshow and going out? You know, looking over her shoulder, holding them closer to herself, making sure that she wasn't being followed or something. Because she recognized the great value that she had in her possession. You may have walked in here today seeing the church has, you know, some value for your Christian life and some value for displaying God's glory. Or you may have be at the other extreme where you have bought into the idea that the scoffers say, you know, the church is of no value at all. But I hope that after you leave today, after having looked at Ephesians chapter 3, that you will see the church is the greatest, has the greatest value of anything that you are involved in in all of life, that there is nothing of greater value than the church. Ephesians three verses 1 through 13 will be our passage. So let me read that for us. Ephesians chapter three, verse one. This is the word of God. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. What I want you to see, which I think is the point of this text this morning, is that God's glory is most powerfully seen in this age through the church. You want to see God's glory on display? Then look at His church. Paul begins in verse 1, overwhelmed by God's mercy. And what he does is he starts into a prayer which gets interrupted. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ. So he begins by identifying himself. Remember, he is a prisoner under the Roman government at this time. But he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of the Roman government. I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my ultimate authority. And then he says at the end of verse 1, "...for the sake of you Gentiles..." Part of the purpose of Paul's imprisonment was for the sake of the Gentiles so that the Word of God could be spread to them so that they also could understand the grace of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying part of the reason that I am in chains, that I am prisoner, is for your sake so that you understand the Gospel. But I want you to notice how he begins the verse or this chapter... It is for this reason. And so that points us back to what we have already seen and what have we seen. Well, in chapter 1, we saw that God exists for His glory. The reason that God is is so that all will know who He is, so that more and more praise can be uh, poured out to Him. And we understand, according to these first two chapters, that we exist for God's glory. It's not just that God exists for His own glory to make his name known but we exist to make God's name known. And the way that we do that is first by chapter 2 bringing us to salvation, right? We can't glorify God as he should be glorified unless we're first saved, verses 1 through 10. And then secondly, by bringing us in unity with the Jews into one body, the church, verses 11 through 22. Okay, so that's what Paul has been talking about in his letter. That we are saved for God's glory. God saves us as individuals to be a part of something larger, the local church. And for this reason, Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, and then what he's about to say is, I bow my knees before the God of the universe for being such a great God. Now, where did I get that from? Why why am I saying that? Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives this name. And then he goes on to praise God for His great grace. Now why do I say that he's about to, about to do that in verse 1? Look at verse 1 with me. For this reason, I, Paul... So he's, he's thinking about all these great truths about our salvation, how we are alienated from God, but God, who is rich in mercy, brought us together and made us alive in Christ. Chapter 2, verses 1-4, through four, right? He's thinking about all these great truths and he's about to say, for this reason I, Paul, bow my knees. But he takes a break here and that's why you have that, that dash there at the end of verse 1. Do you see that? That long extended dash? That's because he's taking a break from what he's about to say, which is he's about to enter into prayer, verse 14, to explain something. And he feels that he has to explain verses two through thirteen to the Gentiles before he can continue on. I mean, we we do this ourselves in our own prayers, right? We're praying for something, and then our minds drift off onto something else. And this is what Paul's doing, but he's doing it in a uh, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit. His writings, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to do this, to explain to the Jews, or excuse me, to the Gentiles, this mystery of Christ. Okay, so what this text is about is about the mystery of Christ. And what we're going to try to find out is what is this mystery of Christ, and how are we a part of it? All right, so let's look at verses two through 13, because before Paul breaks out and in, into prayer, as he will, we'll see next week, Paul explains the mystery of Christ. Paul first begins in verses two and three by showing that it had formerly been concealed. Right, That this mystery was not known for all the ages. Look at verse 2. If indeed you, Ephesian church, have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. Paul saying this had been concealed. He's going to show that more clearly in verses 4 and 5. But it has been revealed to me, Paul. Verse 2, he says, if indeed you have heard, the idea there is... As other translations put it, surely you have heard or assuming that you have heard about this mystery of Christ of which I was an administrator of. Then then, you know what I'm talking about, but he he has to explain it because if you understand how Paul's letters were distributed, they it was to the Ephesian church in this case, but what Paul expected was that his letters would be circulated Right, copied and sent to other churches so that other churches could benefit from God's Word to them. And so that's probably why he includes this part, if you have heard or since you have heard. Some of you have not because you're not a part of, of you know, my close circle. You've, maybe you haven't heard all this. Specifically, it is about the stewardship that Paul had over it, verse 2. The stewardship of God's grace. Paul's saying, you know, this whole idea of the church, this isn't my idea. I didn't come up with this scheme as a way to you know, further advance the Gospel. This is God's idea. This is, I'm simply a steward of it. I'm a manager of what God has already determined. This great mystery. And uh, look down to verse 7 because he explains this a little further. "...of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of His power." Paul's saying this mystery was unrevealed, verses 4 and 5, to former saints. But now it has been revealed to me to spread to the Gentiles specifically. Verse 3, this mystery was made known to Paul. Paul's not saying here in verse 3 that he's the only one to know about this mystery, as if he's the only human to know. There were other apostles that knew of the this mystery. But he was saying, I'm the official representative of it. Right? Notice it was... Um, it was in verse 5 to the apostles and the prophets at the end of the verse. So he's not saying I'm, a, I'm the only one, but and I may not even be the best one, but I am the specific representative to you, the Gentiles, that God has set up to explain this mystery. And this is significant because verses 4 and 5, it was concealed from Old Testament saints. Right, The Old Testament saints, particularly the prophets, had a lot of information about what God was doing and what God would do in, in His world and in his, uh, with His people. But they knew nothing of the local church, did they? They knew nothing of the universal church. Look at verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. It was was concealed from them. They were not able to understand this mystery of Christ. And uh, just want to make one point about this. Apostles and prophets. You know, when we read that, we think, well, it sounds like the Old Testament prophets did know about that. But as I mentioned last week, these are not Old Testament prophets, but New Testament prophets. These New Testament prophets were put in place to... Speak on behalf of God in a time when the, the eras of God were in transition. That is, God is moving from one dispensation to the next. And so God set up these prophets who could speak on his behalf and validate that this church truth, this mystery was real, that this was actually from God. So, that, so don't be confused by that and say, well, it sounds like the Old Testament prophets did know about this. No, they knew nothing of it. They knew nothing of the church. And uh, I just gave away what that mystery was, but that's it. we're going to find out here in verses six through seven. The mystery is the the church. This mystery of Christ. Now, when we think of mystery, we think of you know something that involves clues, like we would read or watch a murder mystery or you know a robbery. We want to find out who who done it type thing. Well, here Paul's not talking about that. In fact, the word mystery that's translated here is not like our word mystery the Greek word from which we get our word actually means something that was previously unknown, something that was before concealed, and that's consistent with with what we just saw in verse 5. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 9, and I'll show you. Chapter 1, verse 9. Paul's talking about You know, that we exist for God's glory. God exists for His glory. We exist for God's glory. Verse 9 says, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him. When He's saying us, He's talking about us, the church, people in this age. It's not that He made known to us this, ooh, mysterious type of thing, but no, something that was previously unknown. And so, what is this mystery? Turn back to chapter 3 and we'll see the specific, um, the content of this mystery in verses 6 and 7. Okay, so Paul says in verse 4, so that you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And then he has a parenthetical idea here in verse 5 and then verse 6. To be specific, we could say that mystery is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel, of which I was made a minister. Okay, so what is this mystery? And simply, as Paul states it, it is that Gentiles, like the Jews, are fellow heirs with Christ in one body. And the idea is that that this is only possible through the church. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verses 16 and 17, Paul explains this great truth for both Jews and Gentiles that we have access now to this great inheritance because of who we are in Christ. No longer estranged, but now we have this special relationship. Chapter 8, verse 16 reads, "...the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God." And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Can you think of that? That we are fellow heirs with Christ? Okay, think about the inheritance that Christ deserves because of who he is a child of the king, a child of the king of all kings. And you and I, as Gentiles, or if there are any Jews, are fellow heirs with Christ. Now, if we understand what it was like in the Old Testament, we recognize what a great privilege it is to be in this category as Gentiles. Because that is not the way that it looked like history would turn out. It looked like if anybody was going to be the fellow heirs with the Son of God, it would be whom? It would be the Jews, right? Right? And the Gentiles would be some, they'd receive some sort of lesser blessing, yes, right? Abraham, through Abraham, all the seeds, all, all the uh, people of the earth will be blessed. Well, the, the Gentiles should receive something, but here's what Paul's telling us, according to the revelation that he received from God, and that is that as Gentiles, we receive the same inheritance as Christ. Look at verse uh, 6 to see all these benefits. Fellow heirs. Fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus. It's not like, you know, you have the Jews, they're the varsity team, and then, you know, the Gentiles are the junior varsity team. They get kind of some benefits, but they're not as important. They have a lesser role. Here's what Paul's saying. We're all on the same level as the Jews. And further, we're all on the same level as Christ as far as the inheritance that we will receive. We get to be placed in this, this position of great um, privilege because of our relationship with Christ. No believer, no prophet of the Old Testament would have seen Gentiles in this light. And that's why it was a previously unrevealed mystery. They had no idea that Gentiles would be put into this position. And now Paul's explaining this to them Do you realize the great privilege you have in Christ? that He's put you on the same level. And specifically, this is seen in the church, the institution of the church, verses 8 through 13. This is the way that God reveals His wisdom. He does it through this, what is formerly a mystery, but now is revealed. That is the church. Paul in verse 8 feels inadequate for the task. He says, you know, apart from the grace of God, I am unworthy to reveal this mystery to you. That's why he says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. That is the, the, the ability to be able to pass on this mystery. And, and he explains it more clearly there at the end of the verse. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. This is what I'm trying to show you this morning. That in Christ... We are like that woman from Tulsa going to Antiques Roadshow. We're starting to understand what is now thought it had some value, but now we see the unfathomable riches of Christ that we have in the church. Now, it's not that it's unfathomable in the sense that it can't be known at all, but rather that it can't be fully known. We keep, can keep searching, searching the depths of the grace that we receive in Christ through the church, but we'll never be able to finally explore it. It's like trying to find the bottom of the ocean. That's the great riches that we have in Christ through the church. And this is not something that God came up with, or it was a man-made religion. It wasn't something that God reacted to, but rather part of God's eternal plan. And we see this in verse 9. Paul says in verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles this unfathomable riches, but also to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. This wasn't an idea that God came up with you know, as He started to see the course of history start to unfold. God had determined that the church would be at the center of what He's doing in this age. In fact, that all things leading... From the beginning of creation, we're leading to this time when, where we are. Obviously, this isn't the end of it. right? This is only the means to the end. We're actually going farther where Christ will marry His bride, the church, and we will f- forever be united with Him in a special way. But it's something that God has done from eternity past. It is a part of God's plan. Notice that, again at the end of verse 9, just to make this clear, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. It's something a part of God's eternal plan. Aren't you thankful that the church is part of God's eternal plan? It's not reactionary. It's not temporal. It has a purpose. It's not competing against another one of His purposes. Rather, that God has a single, all-inclusive plan. You know, Maybe I should figure out something to do with these people, so I'll make this one of my purposes. No, this is a part of his singular purpose to exalt himself through his Son. And he does that through the church in this age. It's the way that God displays his wisdom. That's what the beginning of verse 9 reads. So that, uh, Actually, the beginning of verse 10, so that, he, that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. The way that God displays his wisdom to the people of this age and to to even more creatures than they. And that this ultimately culminates in Christ. This is uh, something that God is doing, that we are part of something bigger. Verse 11 reads, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose. Again, you see this is part of God's eternal plan that he carried out in Christ Jesus, that we are part of of displaying Christ's greatness. And so, if you are a part of the local church, if you, if you are a part of Christ's universal church and you know what that means, you know the riches of that, then you, like Paul, have also be, been made a minister of that mystery. And now you have a responsibility, because of that privilege, to explain those truths to the Gentiles and to the Jews alike. This great mystery that the church of Jesus Christ is the way that God displays His greatness. Notice the purpose of this mystery in verses 10-12. through 12. The purpose of this mystery. It is that the church of Jesus Christ would put God's wisdom on display. Verse 10 reads, "...so that the manifold wisdom of God..." might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, so that, so that God's manifold wisdom would be put on display. To put it in terms of what we've been talking about in Sunday school, the church is not the ultimate reality. God doesn't exist to display the value of the church. We exist to display the value of God. The church exists to display God's value, His manifold wisdom that Paul says here. To display His great value and glory. How does the church do that? How do we put God's wisdom on display? As Christ builds His church, the church displays God's glory, His value. As the church joyfully perseveres in trial, as the church gladly accepts trial and persecution, knowing that God has a purpose in it, knowing that God's in control. We display God's value as we overcome temptation and we avoid the disharmony and the discord that our hearts are pulling us to uh, to try to pull us apart. The world is trying to pull us apart. The external pressures, we avoid that sort of thing. And in that way, we display God's value. Isn't this amazing, the privilege that we have as a church? That God wants to show His creation what a great God He is. And the way that He does that in this age is through the church. And if you don't recognize what a great privilege that you have to be a part of Christ's church, let me show you who's watching. Look at the end of verse 10. Verse 10. And it might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Who is watching? Who is seeing this manifold wisdom of God? By the way, this manifold wisdom, it's multifaceted. Okay, Think about if we could picture God like a diamond. Obviously, we can't confine God to an image, but you recognize... The analogy here, that that He's multifaceted. You just look at Him in all these different angles and see the great treasure that He is. And, And the way that we do that is through the church. And who's watching? The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now, who could this include? Well, I think we recognize that this has to include whom? Holy angels, right? The rulers and authorities, plural, in heavenly places. 1 Peter one twelve says that angels, referring to our salvation, our relationship with God, the fact that He would send His greatest possession, Christ, to die for us, to come into our race, it says that angels long to look into these things. They long to desire what is going on. Why would God display such mercy to these people that are, are opposed to Him? Why would He do that? And how can God change them? So obviously... One of the ways that we display God's wisdom is to the angels, or one, to, one of the groups of people to whom we display God's wisdom is to the angels. But also, we display God's wisdom to another group of God's creation. Look at chapter 6, just to show you. Okay, remember, it was the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Notice to whom Paul is referring here in chapter 6, verse 12. He's not talking about the holy angels. Chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of, of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Who else is watching the church besides the holy angels? It is the fallen angels, it's the demons. It is Satan and his host, his army. So, does that help you see why the church is so important? You start to see the great value that perhaps you walked in today seeing that may be of some value, but when, I, when you walk out, I want you to see what a great value it is that God is, is taking us, the church, and putting us on display before all the angels and the demons. Show what a great and wise God He is. With the popularity of Facebook comes all sorts of new and interesting challenges of those of us who have an account. People who in real life are acquaintances or casual friends find out a lot about you through your Facebook account. I've had several conversations with people who I hadn't seen in months, hadn't talked to them about anything in my life with an actual conversation whom before we had contact on Facebook they were just, you know, acquaintances. We hardly talked. And I run into them and they say, "How is South America?" And how about those tigers? Oh well, wait a second. How do you know I went to South America and how do you know I like the tigers? Okay? And and those Two things maybe would come up in casual conversation if I talk to them regularly or even occasionally, but when I only see these people once a year, it's kind of interesting how much they know about me. Now, that can be both a good and a bad thing. I hope you recognize when you're posting things on there that it's like your personal billboard, so be careful what's posted. Don't use it as a means to take out your frustration on other people, Okay. The point of this, though, is that I'm being watched by more people than I realize. And that I wouldn't otherwise expect me to be, I wouldn't expect those people to be watch watching me. And what I'm telling you this morning is that your life is on display by more people than you think. More creatures than you think. It's not just the watching world around us who understands what's going on at some level in the church as they see one, you know each of us grow in, in, in our love for God and for one another when we give to each other, when we give so much time to the church. You don't think the world around you is watching. They are. But it's more than that. It's the heavenly hosts who are watching what is going on in Christ's church. And the point of all this is that Because we are being watched by so many people and by so many creatures, we have to walk, as the King James says, circumspectly, that is carefully, Ephesians 5.15. And here's what's so fascinating about the mystery of Christ. Your life is on display before those who you wouldn't otherwise think have any care about you. You wouldn't think that there is a host of angels that cares a lick about what's going on in your spiritual life. You wouldn't think that there are enough demons that would even care because, hey, you're not at the top of what it means to be a Christian. You're not being persecuted like Pastor Said or something. You're not, you're not at the center of what the demons are doing. But what the Scriptures tell us is that Christ's church is on display before the heavenly hosts. And what we're supposed to be doing as we are on display is we're supposed to be displaying the manifold wisdom of God. Are we doing that? Or do we even care? Now, there's no way for me to know exactly what this looks like, that the heavenly hosts are watching us. But I picture it as if we are in the center of the arena. In the stadium, it is full of angels and demons who are watching our every move. And when we grow in disharmony and hatred toward one another and neglect and carelessness and perhaps start to adopt and teach false teaching, what do you think the demons are doing in that big arena? What do you think the angels are doing? What do you think that they're thinking about our God? But as we love the truth and as we pour out our love for one another... And as we grow in our knowledge of God and obey Him more fully, and as we lift our hearts in praise to worship and worship to God, because we really mean it, not just because we've done this all of our lives or we think it's some sort of uh, ancillary of some sort of ancillary importance, but you know, as our church gets clobbered by trials, but immediately and regularly turns to God in prayer, knowing that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it, knowing that. Without Christ, we can do nothing. And as this is happening, the heavenly beings are apparently amazed at the manifold wisdom of God. They don't look at us in the center of the arena and say, wow, what a great group of of God's people you are. You're my hero. I want to follow you. They recognize what a great God we serve. That He would allow us The frail people that we are, the undeserving that we are to be made into the image of Christ and display God's manifold, multifaceted wisdom. Notice verse 10 again, chapter 3. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God is putting us as a church on display to show the angels and the demons what a great God He is. And if you can think of a better organization to be involved in in this lifetime, then sign me up. But I can guarantee you on the authority of God's Word that there is no better organization. There is nothing nothing better to be a part of than Christ's church. And this is at the center of what God is doing in this age. And so that means that there's nothing greater that we can invest ourselves into than the church, whether it be our time, our money, our gifts. Because this is what God is doing. This is how God is displaying His wisdom. Notice Paul's expected response of the believers in verse 13 because of this mystery of Christ that's now been revealed. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Paul recognized the the tension here that he was imprisoned because of the Gentiles. Because he was so, uh, so intent on getting the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul had to be imprisoned. If he didn't do that, perhaps he'd still be free. But because he did, he, he he knew that was the reason, and they knew. And so they probably felt bad for themselves and for Paul. Because they caused his imprisonment. But Paul wants them to know don't lose heart because of my imprisonment. Because it's actually working out for the advancement of the gospel. Okay, God is remember, God is the one who has this eternally planned. Don't fret because of this what seems like a an earthly setback. Don't fret because of that, because God's actually working out His plan through my imprisonment. And therefore, don't lose heart. Continue to follow after God. This is part of the way that God advances His work. So, I want you to see this morning through this passage that our church exists to display God's glory. As a church... Christ has bought you with His own blood, Acts chapter 20 tells us. And therefore, we are like a diamond that God puts on display before the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. When when an observer comes in to view the multifaceted beauty of this diamond, hopefully he doesn't praise the diamond itself, but rather turns to the jeweler and says, How could you take something that was complete garbage and turn it into something of great value? What great wisdom you are as the master jeweler. And that's what the the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places will be doing when we are on display before God. So when we recognize the weight of this responsibility, this great privilege that we have, our our response ought not to be to give up in the middle of temptation, but to stay strong because we know we're being watched by more people. More, we're being watched by more people, but also more heavenly creatures as well. That we will grow in our love for one another. We will grow in our desire to know God better, to turn to Him in times of prosperity, and to turn to Him in times of weakness because we are in display of God's manifold wisdom. Jesus said that believers are the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14. And a reflection of who He is. The light. I am the light of the world, right? John 8, 12. The way that we reflect the light of Jesus is by obeying Him. If you love me, keep my commandments. And as a result, we proclaim how great He is. If we're following Him and we're taking great worth in what He has to say and what He wants for us and we're doing it, Then we put his worth on display, that he is worthy of being followed. Our church exists to glorify God, to put his wisdom on display. And so that means, as a point of application, that every believer, every believer, must be a part of a God honoring church. If the church is central to what God is doing in this age, and we've seen that it is, then why would you not want to be a part of it? Why would you not want to be a part of Christ's church? Why would you not want to be an active part of Christ's church? So let me encourage you, for the sake of your own spiritual well-being, that you become a member of a God-honoring church. And if you are a member of a God-honoring church, then be an active member of that God-honoring church. You may think that you, know, you can have a great relationship with God even if you only come once a month or once a week. But can you really? Let me be clear. You don't have to come to church services in order to be a Christian. Just like I don't have to be home with my wife in order to be married, right? But what happens if I'm away from home for long periods of time? I may still be married, but my marriage is going to be in great jeopardy, isn't it? We can't be an active, growing, God-honoring Christian apart from a local church. We can't. God expects it of us. In a very similar way, your relationship with God is in jeopardy. If you forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, Hebrews 10.25. You can't do it. You can't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I recognize that there are exceptions to this rule. Some people are simply unable to come because of serious health conditions that prevent them from coming. But, But are you in that category? Are you able, unable to attend all the services of the church or is it simply because you don't want to come? You can come to whatever is of most value to you. If you see the church as the great value that it is, then you will work your schedule, You will uh, you will save your energy for what is of most importance to you. You know, if you can go to work, And you can go to the grocery store and you can go spend time with your kids at their house or to a place of recreation. Then when it comes to Sunday, you know I'm really worn out. Or Wednesday, I can't come because... Then fill in the blank. And I'm convinced that this is the case for a lot of us because we don't see the great value of the church. We don't see the value of coming together with other believers worshiping God and putting His wisdom on display. And so that's why we come so sporadically. And, and so these last two weeks, I've made this point of application that you need to be a part of a local church. You need to be a member of the local church. And you need to be an active member of the local church. I hope you recognize that I don't have one single person in mind here. Don't feel I'm talking directly to you as if I'm pointing you out. But I am speaking with a level of urgency because I care about your soul. And the thing that is of greatest value to you as a Christian is to be a part of Christ's church. I want you to, to, to experience and know the joy that there is from having a regular and faithful relationship with God and other believers. I want you to know that the joy that other church members who actively engage themselves in the life of this body know because they've committed themselves that you know what? The most important thing in my life is Christ's church and I'm going to make that the most important thing. And I understand that it requires sacrifice on your part. But that's why I want you to see the value because when you see the value, the sacrifice seems very small. I want you to see that for whatever reason, you are not attending worship services as regularly as you should. And Notice I didn't put a number on that. I didn't tell you how often you need to attend. Just you know how regular ought you to be attending. If you're not doing that, I want you to see how futile it is in comparison to the great value of being a part of what Christ is doing, what God is doing this age, displaying you, Before all of His angels. The church doesn't exist for you to make you feel better about yourself or to supply for all of your needs. The church exists for God. To display God's glory. And yes, the church will supply needs when needs are there. Yes, the church will encourage you when you need encouragement. But the main reason that it exists is for God's glory so that God's great wisdom would be put on display before the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Are you even in the arena? Let's pray, Father. We're so thankful for the blood that Jesus shed on our behalf so that we could have life, not only life eternally, but the joy and life that comes now. We can experience the joy of knowing you and a special way by committing ourselves and covenanting ourselves with the expression of Christ's body in one specific place. And we're so thankful for the foundation of our church, the foundation of the gospel, of the truth of God's Word. We're so thankful for the people that have made this church what it is, that have encouraged me in the time that I've been here, to, to stand strong and to, to uh, stand up in the middle of temptation. And who have encouraged me by giving to other people, knowing what the needs are and, and, and taking care of them. Father, You know that we can't, we can't supply needs if we're here very irregularly. We need to be here. We need to be a part of this family. And Lord, you know that there are people in here who are thinking seriously about where they need to be. And so I pray that you would just work in their hearts, help them to, to see the great value of Christ's church. That both in eternity and even now, we are on display before the heavenly angels and demons to show your great wisdom. What a great God you are. That you would give to us the unfathomable riches of Christ, which we don't deserve, which we can't earn, which we can only give our lives in response to it. We can give our lives in service. May our hearts overflow with love because we are part of this great work that You are doing in this age. Help us not to become proud. Perhaps there are others here who attend every service and have become proud because of where they are and perhaps look down with condemnatory sort of look on other people who don't attend as frequently. Help us to be humble before You. Recognize that we are servants of You and we are recipients of Your grace. We, we didn't deserve any of this. But we do ask that You'd help us to see this great value more clearly and the great responsibility that we have because of the privilege that we have to be a part of this church. We ask for Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.